Hello, I'm William Henry. I'm Sylvia Penny and I'll be reading the scriptures. And I'm Mike Penny. Now today is the third podcast on Luke's Gospel. We are planning to talk about the early stages of our Lord's ministry, as reported by Luke. Now this begins with a general introduction to what Jesus was doing. This is what we read in verses 14 to 15 of Luke chapter 4. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. So it doesn't say exactly what he was doing in Galilee apart from teaching, but he was obviously very popular if people people were praising him. Oh, yeah, I think he he was very popular, wasn't he? However, the first specific incident that Luke describes in the Lord's ministry is in verses 16 to 30 of Luke 4. And this was when he was rejected by the people in Nazareth, his own hometown, which was also in Galilee. Yes, it's strange that Luke describes this rejection at Nazareth very early on in Jesus' ministry. Matthew covers the incident way on in chapter 13, and Mark deals with it in chapter 6. In both Matthew and Mark, it comes just before the execution of John the Baptist. Whereas in Luke's gospel, we see that that John the Baptist is still alive in chapter 7, and we don't hear about his death until chapter 9. So why do you think Matthew and Mark include this incident much later than Luke does? Well, uh, there's a couple of possibilities, I suppose. It could have happened more than once. After all, Nazareth was his own town, his own hometown. So he obviously visited a lot. Verse 16 says he went into the synagogue in Nazareth, as was his custom. So he must have visited and maybe even spoken at that synagogue many times. And also, not all the Gospels are written in chronological order. And Luke is probably the one that is most chronologically. But it does appear that he'd already started his work, doesn't it? Verses 14 and 15, which um, Sylvia read earlier, uh, say that he was very popular throughout Galilee. Also in verse 23, he accuses the people of Nazareth of demanding that he does the same things here as they had heard he was doing in Capernaum. Yeah, yeah. So obviously it is not the first thing that happened in his ministry. But Luke's account gives much more detail than either Matthew or Mark does. Um, Let's have a look at it, shall we? Okay. So when he went into the synagogue at Nazareth, they handed him the scroll that contained the reading of the day. It was from Isaiah chapter 61, and this is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he then handed the scroll back. And verse 20 says the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Why do you think that was? Well, first of all, it was a very short reading. But, um, well, if you look at Isaiah 61, you'll see that the next verse goes on to say, or the next part of the verse goes on to say, and the day of vengeance of our God. So he stopped in mid-verse. Actually, he stopped in mid-sentence. No wonder everyone stared at him. If if that happened in your church, people would probably stare also. Yeah, I guess they would, yeah. Yeah. 
But the reason he stopped at that point was because of what he was going on to say next. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Right. So this was the time of good news and freedom and the year of the Lord's favour. It was not yet the day of vengeance. And presumably that's why he met, left that part out. But he was confirming that he was the Messiah, wasn't he? Mm. And his coming, of course, was foretold by Isaiah. Yeah. But although the people were amazed at his gracious words that he spoke, they thought they knew him. After all, he was a person that had grown up in Nazareth. They had seen him grow up. They knew his family. They knew his mother and his brothers and his sisters. To them, he was nothing more than Joseph's son. So who did he think he was claiming to be the Messiah? Yeah, but Jesus really put the cat among the pigeons with his response, didn't he? I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut up for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. It's in Luke 4, verses 25 to 27. Yeah, and those comments made the people in the synagogue furious. So much so they tried to throw him off a cliff, simply because he had highlighted two examples from the scriptures of when Gentiles, rather than Jews, were blessed by God. Yeah, isn't it fascinating that Luke, who's a Gentile, should report this incident, which I suppose highlights blessings for Gentiles right at the start of his account of the Lord's ministry? Yeah, and I think there is no doubt that Jesus was also provoking his own townspeople because of their unbelief. So what about the rest of chapter four then? Well, the the rest of chapter four describes the work that the Lord did in Capernaum, in Galilee which is where he really made his base. Um, There seems to be two aspects to his work. One is miracles and two is teaching. So what sort of miracles then was he doing? Oh, well, there was quite a variety. Uh, Luke describes that on one single Sabbath day in Capernaum, this is what he did. He healed a man possessed by an evil spirit. He healed Peter's mother-in-law of a high fever. He cured various kinds of sicknesses. And he cast out demons from several people. Seems to be an awful lot of demons around in those days, isn't there? Yes, it's a difficult subject. But it's interesting that in scripture, most of the demon possession activity took place when our Lord was on earth. But the thing about the Lord casting out demons is that it shows Christ's authority. Luke 4.36 says this. All the people were amazed and said to each other, what is this teaching? With authority and power, he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. As I mentioned there of the teaching, so what does Luke say about his teaching in chapter 4? Well, again, there's an emphasis on authority. And as we said, even the people in Nazareth were impressed by his gracious words in verse 22. But in verses 31 to 32, Luke says this. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. So what exactly was he teaching there? 
Well, following the miracles he did in Capernaum, the people didn't want him to leave. But he said this in Luke 4.43. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Good news of the kingdom of God. So he was a traveling preacher then, was he? Not only in Galilee, but in Judea too. But he didn't do it alone, did he? No, no. By this time, he had the company of some of the disciples to help him. That's right. And at the beginning of chapter five, Luke describes the calling of Peter and James and John. But I think that this isn't the first time that Simon Peter at least had met Jesus. John chapter one, verse 41 tells us that Andrew, who was Simon Peter's brother, he was a disciple of John the Baptist. And when John pointed out Jesus as being the Lamb of God, he went and found Simon and brought him to Jesus. And John 1.42 says this. Jesus looked at him and said, You are called Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. And in the incident of the great catch of fish, which we read about in Luke chapter 5, there's no mention of Andrew. But we do know that Andrew and Peter, his brother, were partners in a fishing business with James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And they are present in the Luke 5 account, and they helped to bring this huge catch of fish back on shore. Yeah, that's right. And in Matthew's much shorter account of the calling of Peter in Matthew 4, Andrew is present. And so are James and John, a bit further along the beach. Mind you... That also could have been a different incident from the one described in Luke. However, these four men became a sort of core group of the 12 disciples, and they followed Jesus everywhere. But going back to Luke chapter 5, we get a story there that doesn't appear in any of the other Gospels. Jesus is standing by the lakeshore teaching the crowd, and it looks as if he was afraid he was going to be pushed into the water. So Luke says this. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen, who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. That's Luke 5, verses 2 and 3. Well, that's a really neat way to get himself a breathing space, isn't it? Eh? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but obviously he must have met Simon Peter before and known him quite well. Because you wouldn't climb into a stranger's boat and ask him to push out into the lake when he was busy doing something else. Right, but it's after he finishes the teaching that it gets interesting. He asks Simon to put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. But the best fishing is at night, not in bright sunshine. So here's a carpenter telling an experienced fisherman how to fish. Yeah, but see Peter's response to it. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. That's Luke 5, 5. So again, you get the impression that Simon Peter knew Jesus and also that he regarded him very highly because it's because Jesus said so that he was prepared to let down the nets. Yeah. And we all know what happened. They caught so many fish, they had to signal to their partners, James and John, James and John to come and help them. And both, both boats were on the point of sinking. 
Yeah, but it's Peter's reaction that's interesting, though. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. That's in Luke 5.8. Curious, isn't it? Um, Why do you think that Peter saw a connection between the Lord's fishing skills and his goodness? You'd think that Peter might have invited the Lord to join the fishing business since he was so effective. That's a tough question, that, actually. Why is there a connection between the Lord's fishing skills and his goodness? Um, Peter calls Jesus master there in verse 5, which is a term that really, I think, refers to anybody in authority. But there in verse 8, he calls him Lord, which is used in the Greek Old Testament to refer to God. Jesus did this miracle in Peter's area of expertise, and it made Peter realize that he was in the presence of somebody much greater than just a powerful teacher and healer. In John chapter 1, in Peter's first meeting with Jesus, Andrew introduced him by saying, we have found the Messiah, the Christ. No doubt that experience confirmed the truth that he'd had from Andrew in Peter's mind. Yeah. Yeah, and far from Jesus going away from Peter, Jesus invited Peter to leave his boats and follow him. Jesus was not going to work in the fishing business, but neither was Peter for a while. He was going to catch something else. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. And so they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything and followed him. That's Luke 5, verses 10 and 11. But they were not the only disciples we read about in this chapter, were they? No, um, verses 27 to 31, we're told about the call of Levi or Matthew, the writer of the first gospel. Yeah, Luke calls him Levi in this passage, whereas Matthew calls him Matthew throughout. And Mark and Luke both call him Matthew when they list the 12 disciples. Okay, so Levi, we're told, was a tax collector. And Jesus called him while he was sitting in his office. The calling of Levi is just explained very briefly. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. And that's Luke 5, 27 to 28. It's rather amazing that Levi just got up and followed Jesus just like that. Do you think that uh, he had met Jesus before, like Peter and the others? Well, I don't know. We're not told anything specific about that. Possibly. Could well have done. Tax collectors had their own allotted patch, and if Matthew's patch was in Capernaum, that was where Jesus visited and stayed quite regularly, then possibly they may well have seen one another, even if they hadn't actually met. But who knows? Jesus may even have paid his taxes to Levi. Oh, yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting idea. Yeah, 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 I don't know about that one. But it must have been a big deal for Levi because tax collectors were really despised by the people as being collaborators with the Romans. And they also had a reputation for being dishonest. But Levi seems to have just walked away from his job. I think he'd be unlikely to get that job back if things didn't work out with Jesus. Andrew and Peter and James and John, they, they also had the family business to go back to. But Levi had really burned his boats. 
<laughs> I suppose that may have been something that the four fishermen would have done. Yeah, 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 okay. Now, perhaps Levi the outcast was so proud of being chosen by Jesus that he was prepared to follow him completely. And, you know, just like uh, Zacchaeus, the other tax collector in Luke 19, I think it is. Yeah, maybe that's it. But Levi gave a great banquet for Jesus, to which he invited all his tax collector colleagues. So he's very open about what he was doing. Yeah, and the good old Pharisees complained about Jesus keeping the company of tax collectors, as we read in Luke 5.30. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Yes, it must have been quite a group. Hey? All these rich men with dodgy reputations gathered together in Levi's house. But these were the people the Lord came to call, wasn't it? As he says there in, in Luke chapter 5 and verses 31 to 32. Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Anyway, so these um, five, I suppose, are the only disciples whose calling we read about. Yeah, we don't know where the others come from at all. John chapter 1 describes how Philip and Nathaniel, who's sometimes called Bartholomew, how they met Jesus. But we don't know about the rest of the 12. Uh, Luke gives a list of the 12 disciples in chapter 6. Yes, Matthew and Mark also give a list. That's the same people as in Luke's, obviously. That's right. But Luke says something rather important at the start of that list in chapter 6, verses 12 to 13, which neither Matthew nor Mark mention. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he designated apostles. Now, Jesus was in the habit of going away to lonely places or up mountains by himself to pray. Luke 5.16 says he often, do, often did this. So in this case, he prayed all night before making the choice of the 12. So I, it wasn't an easy decision, was it? No, no, and yet the fact is he still chose Judas Iscariot, even after a night of prayer. Deliberate, you think? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely deliberate, no doubt. In, in, and, you know, in Matthew 26, 24, at the Last Supper, the Lord says the following. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. So God had decreed in advance that this was going to happen and that Jesus would be betrayed. But Judas was still accountable for what he did. Oh, yeah, that's definitely true, yeah. So in the rest of chapter 5, in the first part of chapter 6, Luke gives us a number of other incidents, mainly healings. And the common feature of them is that they show the Lord's view of the law. Well, well, it, it may be more accurate to say that it shows the Lord's attitude to the Pharisees' interpretation of the law and the things they added to it. Yeah, okay. Um, the first incident is when Jesus met a leper who asked for healing and Jesus touched the leper and healed him. But then he insisted that the man should follow the procedures which were outlined in the law. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest 
and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. That's Luke 5, verse 14. So the Lord told the man not to tell anyone. <laughs> There's no way that's going to happen, is there? Luke says that crowds of sick people came to Jesus to be healed. Yeah, I, I think that the Lord was always wary of the danger of people seeing him as a populist messiah. Yeah, I think you so. know, one who would lead them into a rebellion against the Rome. Yeah. So he regularly withdrew from the crowds to a lonely place. Yeah, but Jesus actually touched the man. He was a leper and Jesus wasn't afraid to do that. And that would have made him ceremonially unclean. But there's no indication here that Jesus went through the rituals for ceremonial uncleanness. Maybe because he was God, he didn't need to do that. Yeah, I've never sort of noticed or thought about that before. That's uh, interesting, but uh, I'm not sure why um, he touched him. Well, obviously to signally heal him, but... Yeah, if you touch somebody who's unclean under the law, you become clean. You become unclean, sorry, yeah, but anyway. However, the next instant really brings out Jesus's deity. Oh, yeah, this is the, the famous story of the paralyzed man who was lowered on a stretcher through the roof by his four friends, right down in front of where Jesus was teaching. But Jesus didn't immediately heal the man's paralysis. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. That's Luke 5, verse 20. Yes, and the Pharisees didn't like that, did they? Now look at verse 21. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Yeah, but the thing is, they were right, you know. But Jesus' response to that, I think, is completely brilliant. Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Oh, well, I, I, well, definitely easier to say, your sins are forgiven. Yes, but then in Luke 5, 21 to 25, he goes on. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he'd been lying on, and went home praising God. Yeah, there's that word authority again. You see that? We were talking earlier about the Lord's authority in his teaching and also his authority and his ability to cast out demons. Now here he's claiming authority to forgive sins, and that's a power that's only possessed by God. But uh, here Jesus refers to himself as the son of man rather than the son of God. Wasn't that a strange title for him to take? Yeah, well, actually, it's the most common title Jesus takes upon himself. He uses it about 25 times in Luke's gospel alone. And this is, I think, the first occurrence of it. Right across the gospels, I think he describes himself as son of man about 80 times. It's a title that only he uses. Nobody else calls him son of man. Yeah, that's true. But um, hang on, doesn't Stephen refer to him as the Son of Man in Acts 7? You know, when he had his vision of the glorified Christ just as he was being stoned. Yeah, yeah, you're possibly right there, but nobody else does. So what's the significance of the title Son of Man? I think it's hard to say. Jesus, of course, is both man and God, and that's why he's able to be the perfect mediator between us 
and the Father. In John chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus says that God has given him the authority to judge mankind because he is the Son of Man. Yes, and as the great high priest in Hebrews 4, he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he had been tempted and tested in every way like, like we are, yet he did not sin. However, I think the Son of Man figure in the Gospels is more than human, though. Son of Man, it says, but he's more than human. It's the way Jesus tends to refer to his own identity as the Christ, Israel's Messiah. The title is, is used to speak of the one who's going to come in the clouds to set up his kingdom, which is an everlasting kingdom. It refers, I think, to a couple of verses in Daniel. And there, Daniel uh, records a vision that he had. Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14, say this. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Gosh, authority again. Yeah. So the Lord had authority in his teaching, authority over demons, authority to forgive sins, authority over the nations. But there's one other area in this passage where he claims to have authority, authority over the Sabbath. Yep. Two incidents, I think, at the start of chapter six. First of all, he and his disciples were walking through grain fields on the Sabbath and the disciples picked the ears of grain and, and ate them. This was work, so-called, to the Pharisees, and they challenged Jesus as to why they were doing that. And this was his response, which is in Luke 6, verses 3 to 5. Have you never heard what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and, taking consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Oh, there's that title, Son of Man, again. And he is also called Lord of the Sabbath. That's right. But the second incident in chapter 6 is when he healed on the Sabbath. Oh, yeah. He was always getting into trouble for that, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. In this case, it was a man whose right hand was shriveled. And Jesus knew that the Pharisees were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath, which, like the picking of corn, was work. So Jesus asked them this. I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? And that's Luke 6, 9. And then he healed the man. And then we are told that the Pharisees started plotting against him. They completely lost focus on what was important, hadn't they? Yeah. They had added to the law of Moses all their petty rules and regulations that caused people hardship. In Mark's account of the disciples picking grain, Jesus says that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. I think that's Mark 2.27, I think. Yeah, and that kind of authoritative teaching must have been like gold dust for the people, mustn't it? But, but what exactly was Jesus' message? I mean, we've talked about teaching and the good news of the kingdoms. When we looked at Luke 4 a few minutes ago, 
So we have read that, that the reason the Lord came was to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. But what's that good news? Presumably that's the gospel that we might preach it today, that Jesus died for our sins and we need to believe in him to be saved. Whoa, oh, how long a bit. Up to this point in the gospels, up to this point in Jesus's life, don't forget Jesus had said nothing about his death. Now, the yeah. word, where the word gospel does mean good news, and obviously the good news of the kingdom does include believing in Jesus. But what were they to believe? That's a tricky question, I think. And also, I think if we want to understand what Jesus meant by the gospel of the kingdom, we need to know what he meant by the kingdom, don't we? Oh, that's another big question. So we got two really big questions that we have to deal with. And I think we will look at these in our next podcast. Thank you for listening. God bless you.